1: So, in tonight's talk, I'd like to present just a basic overview of the meditative journey and how we experience each of these different kinds of knowing and understanding in our practice, you know, in quite a practical way. We all come to the meditation with a variety of motivations Now we may come here for many different reasons but for all of us the journey starts the meditative journey starts with the simple steps of calming the mind and collecting the attention because with a scattered mind we can't see anything so the basic steps is just, just the beginning of calming down a little bit, collecting the attention, and as you know, we do it by giving the mind a very simple, basic object of meditation. It could be the breath, it could be the body, just sitting, it could be sounds. We just give the mind some easily recognizable object, and practice over and over again, relaxing into the direct experience of this particular object. Now, one of the things you may have noticed is that although this is very simple, this is not complicated, we're not asking you know, ourselves to visualize a mandala with 100,000 deities and different colors and hand gestures and keep that in your mind for an hour. No, it's so in, out. <laughs> 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 I mean, it couldn't be simpler. And yet, as we have discovered, it's not always easy. Our minds are often running wild. We may feel all these thoughts and judgments in the mind as these loud, demanding voices that are calling our attention. We can get lost in a seemingly endless flow of images and fantasies. There's the roller coaster of all of our different emotions and the endless thoughts of past and future. It's as if we hop on trains of mental association, which carry us away. But what's so interesting, we don't know that we've hopped on the train. We don't know when we've hopped on. And we have no idea where the train is going. You know, because it's all done unknowingly. So we hop on the train, it's going someplace, and then 30 seconds or a minute or five minutes or half an hour later, it's as if we wake up, we hop off the train, often in a very different mental, physical environment. Or another analogy for our mental experience. It would be like going to a movie theater where they change the, the movie every 10 seconds. And would you pay to go to that? <laughs> well, we are paying <laughs> because this is our minds. So often we call this activity, you know, in common meditative language, we call it the wandering mind. But it's interesting to notice that the mind doesn't actually wander anyplace. The mind is not going anyplace. All that's happening is that different mind objects, different mental phenomena, thoughts, emotions, fantasies, that different ones are arising in the moment, but we're not aware that they've risen. So that's what really is what we're calling the wandering mind. It's not that the mind is on a trip. It's just that something is arising in the mind, and we're not aware of it. So you've all come here to practice insight meditation. And you may be wondering, well, where's the insight Quite encouragingly, you have all had the first insight. Every single one of you. Because the first insight of insight meditation is the direct seeing of how busy and active our minds are. Is there anybody who has failed that insight? I don't know, you've all passed. From the very first time we sit down, we see that you know, it's so obvious. It's the first thing we learn about our minds, of how busy they are, and how often, how frequently, we get lost again and again and again in the story, in what's arising, in the movies of our minds. Don't underestimate the importance of this insight. The fact that we often get lost in the thoughts of our minds, that the mind is busy and active. Because most people who have not taken the time to actually look into their minds don't know this. You went out on the street, just you know person on the street interview, does your mind wander? Oh, no, no, I know what I'm doing, you know, I'm present. People have no idea. And this is going to sound a little strange, so you have to understand what I mean by it. But I think that most people don't even realize they have minds. Now, of course, they know on one level they have a mind. (laughs) But until we actually sit down and look, at what the mind is doing and the nature of awareness, the nature of all these different kinds of knowing. It's like most people don't know, really, what's going on. So this first insight is not insignificant. We have really learned something important. Because without this basic understanding of how busy our minds are and how often we're lost, Without this basic insight, there is really no motivation to wake up, which is precisely why most people in the world are just going through their lives and waking up is not a high priority, because they haven't seen what their minds are doing, what
2: their minds are up to.
1: A consequence of this insight into the busyness of our minds, of how often we get lost in the thoughts and fantasies and judgments.
2: A consequence
1: of this insight is that we can reframe the moment when we wake up from being lost, So instead of waking up from being lost, which happens countless times a day, for as many times as you get lost in a thought, that many times you wake up from being lost. So that waking up is happening many, many times during the day. We can reframe that moment so that we actually take delight and interest in the moment of awakening rather than have judgment about being lost. So watch what your mind does. You know, you're sitting, you're with the breath, the body, whatever your object is. You get lost in some fantasy, some planning. Notice what your mind does when you become aware that you're thinking. What's your first reaction? Is it, oh, this is what wakefulness is like? Great. Or is it, there I was lost again. There I was thinking, I'm such a bad yogi. Just watch what your mind does and you can train yourself to actually appreciate the quality of wakefulness that is there in that moment. As I say, it arises many, many, many times a day. As often as you're lost, That many times are you awake. Don't jump over the wakeful moments. Really pay attention to that. It's a chance to really see something about the nature of awareness, the nature of wakefulness. It's a gift. There's a Native American writer, wonderful writer, Louise Erdrich. And I came across this in an article she had written. You said those powerful moments of true knowledge which we paper over with daily life. But every so often, something shatters like ice, and we fall into the river of our own existence. We are aware. That's just, it's a wonderful image. You know, powerful moments of true knowledge which we paper over with daily life. It's these moments of waking up, it's a moment of true knowledge. That we just paper over, we rush by, we don't pay attention to. But every so often, something shatters like ice, and we fall into the river of our own existence. We drop into the awareness, the wakefulness, right in that moment of what's happening. We fall into the river of our own existence, we are aware. So as we practice recognizing the moments of waking up from being lost and coming back to the breath, coming back to the body, to sounds, the movements in walking, as we do this over and over again, and this is why it's called practice, slowly the mind does get somewhat collected. It does calm down. You know, the thoughts are still there, but they're not quite so demanding. Thoughts get a little less aggressive. We might begin to experience in ourselves some moments of clarity, some moments of stillness. So, this provides a useful space then for furthering the investigation for furthering what we can know about our experience so in addition to simply feeling the breath or feeling the movement you know of a step or hearing a sound as has been mentioned frequently when there's a little bit of clarity a little bit of stillness we can then look and see and question the attitudes in the mind about the experience. How are we holding them? How are we, how are we relating to what's arising? And I've just been struck in my own practice how even with something as simple as the breath, you Now we're just sitting in-breathing, out-breathing, how easy it is or an attitude to creep in unnoticed. Now it might be the subtle attitude, we're just with the breath, and there's just a subtle wanting, or a subtle expectation, or a leaning into it in order to have the next one come. Just some slight energetic movement. Or maybe there's a subtle judgment of the breath. You know, it should be longer, or it should be deeper, or whatever. Seeing these attitudes is not a problem. It's precisely what we want to see. Because when we see these subtle attitudes, these subtle, you could say, energetic movements of the mind, slightly leaning toward or leaning back from we're learning something. We're learning something about ourselves. We're learning something about our relationship, whether it's to the breath or to anything else. We begin to see, not theoretically, we really begin to experience very intimately and directly, oh, wanting mind is like this. This is what wanting is like. You know, we feel it, we know, we're learning something. Our resistance is like this. We're pushing something away. So seeing these things is not a problem at all. It's precisely what we want to see in order to understand them more deeply. If the mind has a little bit of stillness and is just collected a little bit and there's interest you might begin to notice that as you're sitting notice with the in breath out breath or with the whole body or with sounds whatever it is pay attention to the quality of the mind in the moment of asking the question in the mind, what's the attitude? You know. So suppose you're with the breath, and the question comes, okay, what's the attitude here? In the very moment of asking the question, notice the quality of the mind. And I'll just kind of give you a hint. And this is just from what I've noticed. <laughs> Maybe you'll notice something different. But what I've noticed, is that when I ask that question, what's the attitude, in the very moment of asking the question, the mind has already let go of the identification with the attitude. Does that make sense? You know, If I'm leaning into it in some way, and I ask the question, okay, well, what's the attitude in the mind? In the very moment of asking the question, there's a certain opening, a certain release. So just play with this. You know, it's all about learning the nuances, the subtleties of how the mind is working. So as our mind gets a little collected and we begin to feel a little bit of calm and interest you know, with whatever our basic anchor is. As we become somewhat less distracted, then what happens quite commonly is that we begin to feel the body in a much more direct and intimate way. We go from an abstract sense of the body to being mindful of the actual sensations. So we can practice this, and we can learn about this in a variety of ways. But just for now, I'd like to do a little experiment. If you could just hold your hands together in some way, so that your hands are touching. And if I were to ask, you and I, I guess pretend that you've never meditated. Okay, so so you you are you are the as the Buddha says in the text untutored worldlings. <laughs> okay, you're an untutored worldling, and I ask you, what do you feel? Now, what do you think a common response might be? Remember, you're not meditating. Okay, I feel my hands. I feel my fingers. Wouldn't wouldn't that be a common response? You know, what do you feel? I feel my hands. I, hear, I feel my hands touching. That's the untutored worldling response. <laughs> now you guys sort of will know that it's not that. We don't feel our hands touching. There's no sensation called hand. You know, I feel my hand? No. We don't feel the hand. We don't feel fingers. Those are concepts. What we are actually feeling are particular sensations of softness, of hardness, of warmth, of vibration, of tingling. Do you see the difference? Hand, fingers, arm, body is a concept, and they're useful. You know, if you want to buy a pair of gloves, it's good to know the size of your hand, So, all of these concepts are useful, but in terms of what's actually being felt on the level of direct experience, that's a concept. And what we feel are particular sensations. Why is this so important? Because the concept we have about things, the concepts we have don't change. Hand today, hand tomorrow, hand yesterday. And if we're living in the world of concept, we fall into the illusion that the hand is something more or less solid, more or less permanent, and yet on the level of direct experience of the body, not as a concept, when we are really feeling what's there, we see that the sensations that we feel, the sensations that we can touch directly, are changing in every moment. So this is a powerful shift you know from our usual normal conventional life in concept to dropping into life as an energetic field an energetic dance this is an important shift in meditation practice There's another way of bringing this more direct, intimate experience of the body into our practice, and we have emphasized a lot, and will continue to do so, how important continuity of awareness is through the day. In some way, I think the awareness in general activities is the most important part of the retreat, because that's what's going to carry over into your lives the most. But often people find it really difficult to keep that continuity of mindfulness in just all the, all the different activities, whether we do, whether it's you know your yogi job or you're showering, or you're going back to your room and get busy with whatever you do in your room. And very often people report, oh, you know, that's where I lose it, that's where I lose the mindfulness. Okay, so I wanna offer a suggestion for a way of keeping the continuity through all of these different activities. If you pay attention to your physical experience as you go through different activities in the day, you will find that they all can come down to simple acts of moving and touching. Moving, touching. You're putting your shoes on. There's some kind of movement. There's some kind of touch sensation. You're brushing your teeth. There's some kind of movement, there's some kind of touch, more movement, more touch. You're eating, you're taking a shower. It's a movement, it's a touch. It's a touch, it's a movement. So if you want to simplify the whole day and keep a real continuity through it, just pay attention to those two things. Can you remember two things? Moving touching <laughs> it's not a lot <laughs> it's amazing because our whole day is just it's just a sequence of movements and touches you know? and so you don't have to be concerned about the complexity of activities because they all come down to that now one of the problems that comes up as the mind gets a little collected Little calmer, we begin to feel the body more directly, more intimately, we begin to feel all these sensations directly, not concepts. One of the difficulties that often arises is that many of the sensations we begin to feel in the body are unpleasant. You know, we might begin to feel places of tension or tightness or pressure, you know, or hardness or burning. Somebody once gave me an article from an old Good Housekeeping magazine, and the article was 71 Kinds of Pain, (laughs) and it just listed all of these different painful sensations, 71 different kinds of painful sensations. This is a great meditator's handbook. Now what happens in the practice is, as we just settle into the body, we're no longer distracting ourselves so much. There are pleasant sensations too, but often the ones we feel first, you know just the areas of discomfort. But it's important, this is an important part of the practice, to learn how to open to them, to be with them. How we relate to our own bodies can show us a lot about how we relate to the world. Now, All of us would like our lives to be always pleasant, for the body to never get sick and never get injured and not to feel pain, for our minds to always be happy and peaceful. We'd all like that. The problem is that it's not how life is. You know, so if we're really opening to the nature of our lives, the nature of existence, we need to really see things as they are. With these different sensations, sometimes unpleasant that we feel, it's helpful to bring an investigative wisdom, a discerning wisdom to them, because they can be telling us very different things. Sometimes when we're feeling pain in the body, it's actually a danger signal. You know, If you put your hand in fire and it starts to burn, you don't want to just say, oh, burning, 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 <laughs> unless maybe as some great saint you can do that. But for most of us, burning, oh, something's... <laughs> Maybe I should take my hand out of the fire. So sometimes pain is a danger signal. Sometimes discomfort happens, and it's signaling something else. Sometimes discomfort can happen in our practice because we're over-efforting. We're just striving so much and tightening. We're not practicing in a balanced way. You know, and so just from that over-efforting, over-striving, we can really get tight and tense. We want to know that. Sometimes, though, the feeling of pain or discomfort in the body is actually part of a healing process. Because all of us come with a lot of accumulated tension in our bodies, just from the busyness of our lives and from all the reactivity that's happened throughout our lives. There's a lot stored in the body you know, in terms of tension and tightness we come here, we settle down, we make some space, we become less distracted. As we tune into the body and begin to feel this discomfort, we are actually making space for this tension to unwind, the tension to release. And it's not only superficial tension. Many stories, especially in the monasteries in Asia where people practice for long times, a very organic disease is being healed. So there's a whole healing aspect to the creation of a mindful space, mindful awareness, where we're allowing ourselves to feel the sensations without reaction. So you need to begin to learn and get intuitive. When is pain a danger signal? When is it coming because I'm trying too hard? When is it part of a healing process? And this is part of what we learn in our practice. When we bring wisdom to this domain of physical sensations, which become more and more obvious and clear, and again, it's dropping down from the concept level of concept of body. We're really dropping into the felt experience of it. We begin to notice what our relationship is to all these sensations. We begin to notice the attitudes in the mind about them. You know, very often, this fear of discomfort. We begin to sit and feel some pain, and it's very interesting to watch the mind at this point, because when the pain first comes, you know, it may be perfectly okay, but then the mind thinks, well, what's it going to be like in half an hour? You know, and then when we start thinking, oh my God, I have to sit here for another half hour, what's the pain going to become? So we're creating a whole mental story in our minds and then getting afraid, forgetting that right now in the moment, it's okay. So we want to see that attitude in the mind and see if fear is arising. Or maybe there's feelings of self-pity. You know, we're sitting in a lot of discomfort and everybody else looks like perfect yogis, not moving, obviously in bliss. And we just start feeling sorry for ourselves. You know, it's the poor me syndrome. Or maybe with these unpleasant sensations and feelings, there's just avoidance or denial. You know, it's, have you perfected yet the sidelong glance? <laughs> you know, something's there, and we, kind of <laughs> we give it a moment's glance and then just hope it goes away. That's not mindfulness.
2: <laughs> well,
1: yeah, and often there's just basic straightforward aversion. Unpleasant feeling, we don't like them. We just don't like them. And we do want them to go away. As with something as simple as the breath, very often we're so caught up in these attitudes of the mind that we don't see them. The sensations are there, we're feeling them, but there's some attitude about them that may be very strong, but if we're not in the habit of looking back and seeing what the attitude is, that attitude can be there completely unrecognized. So then the question arises, how can we practice recognizing what seems to be quite invisible? There's one very good feedback, and it's This is a
2: great practice.
1: A perfect feedback that tells you when there is an unnoticed attitude in the mind or some unnoticed experience happening is when you have some sense of struggle. When you're feeling that you're struggling in the practice in whatever way. Because struggle is a pretty obvious feeling. You know, when you're sitting or walking or doing anything, do you know that sense of just it's kind of frustration and struggle and things are not quite going easily or smoothly? That sense of struggle is an incredibly important piece of information. It's not a problem. Because the struggle is telling you something. Struggle means only one thing. It means that something is arising in our experience that we're not accepting. Because if we were accepting it, we wouldn't be struggling. So it's very simple. Struggle always signifies something is going on that we're not open to. So instead of simply getting lost and tangled up in the struggle you know, and trying to fight through it, rather than that, when you're feeling a sense of struggle, stop. Take the information from it. Let the struggle wake you up to the fact, okay, something's going on I'm not open to. Let me see what it is. A question that I've used very often in my practice in those times, and it's just been so helpful to me. In times when I'm struggling, I'll just kind of literally and and metaphorically sit back. It's like this move. Okay, sit back, open up, and I'll simply ask the question of myself Okay, what's happening? I'm just opening myself to whatever is happening. It might be some discomfort in the body that I had unknowingly not been open to. It might be some mood in the mind that I wasn't aware of, that I wasn't open to. It might be the fact that there are a lot of thoughts in the mind that I wasn't acknowledging. Now, if we're sitting and we have this strong intention... To Just be with the breath, but there are a lot of thoughts passing through, and you're trying to be with the breath, guaranteed you're going to feel a sense of struggle. What does struggle mean? It means one thing. Something's going on that we're not open to. Sit back, open up, ask the question, what's happening? Oh, a lot of thoughts. Fine, not a problem then we're just aware of a lot of thoughts happening and the struggle goes away. Does this seem clear? It seems clear to me. (laughs) Because it's so simple. It's just so simple and such an important such an important feedback and one that is so easily transformed into awareness. Sometimes People may feel discouraged or dissatisfied or impatient, you know, in this meditative journey. And we begin to open our bot- to our bodies and feel, you know, the discomforts that may be there at times. <clears throat> we may feel discouraged when we realize that this practice is not all about blissful feelings. You know, it's, it's not what we're particularly looking for or aiming for, or even that happens all the time. Even for very experienced meditators, people who have been practiced 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, how often do we continue to measure, evaluate our sittings Pleasant equals good. Unpleasant equals bad. I, this is just so common, you know. Maybe you're home and you're sat and get up, and then your friend or partner asks, "Well, how was your sitting?" "Oh, it was great. Body was light. I was concentrated. It was, you know, great sitting." And maybe the next day, same thing happens. They ask, "How was your sitting?" "Oh, it was terrible. I had so much pain and restlessness and this and that. Terrible sitting." Not even for a moment do we consider that the real measure is how mindful we were of whatever was happening. It's like the mind just jumps. Pleasant is good, unpleasant is bad. It is the wrong measure. That's not what's important. The side Utejaniya had very direct words to this. He said, you have to accept and watch both pleasant and unpleasant experiences You only want pleasant experiences. You don't want even the tiniest unpleasant experience. Is this fair? Is this the way of the Dhamma? So we just need to look in our minds. When I heard this, I thought, he's right. (laughs) I don't want even the tiniest unpleasant experience. I mean, that conditioning is just so strong. So we need to look at that, we need to see, because that is not fair in a dharmic sense. Our practice, our whole path, is about opening to the reality, to the truth of what's here. And sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant. And the measure of our practice is simply whether we can be aware, whether we can be mindful of what's present So we practice softening, opening, relaxing into all of these feelings of the body, coming to know what we actually feel. And as this is happening, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, it's really a sign of deepening practice, because we're no longer distracting ourselves. We're actually here. Now, as we settle with greater awareness into the body and all of these changing feelings, our attitudes about the sensations, we also begin to see more and more clearly all of the habituated patterns and tendencies in our minds. We see the likes, we see the dislikes, we see the judgments and desires we really see the inner commentary about almost everything. We can see the many projections we have about other people. I mean, have you noticed how many comments arise in the mind about your fellow yogis? and people you probably don't even know, but it doesn't stop the mind from having a little judgment. So there may be these quick little judgments. They may be this pattern of endless self-judgments that proliferate, proliferate in the mind. What's so fantastic about this development of awareness is that we can learn things about our minds in any situation. It's not limited to sitting in the hall. I've had some of my... most interesting and often profound insights just in my yogi job on retreats so i'll just tell you one story of this and this is i wouldn't put it in the category of most profound insight but it was it was striking enough that i remember it so my yogi job I was at the forest refuge and my yogi job was veggie chopping Now, I don't have a lot of experience with cooking, being in the kitchen. It's not one of the things I do. So my veggie chopping, you know, usually we were paired. And very often I was paired with somebody who was really quite expert. You know, and everything was perfectly even and perfectly sliced. And I'm kind of... So anyway, one one day the cooks had given us a bunch of eggplant to slice. Okay, so it's not that hard a job. (laughs) I'm slicing the eggplants and we're putting them in the pan and they were going to be making eggplant parmesan. Let's all do it and put them in the pan then finish up, clean up, go back to sit. And they went to lunch expecting the eggplant parmesan and they served something else. I just wondered a little bit about it. You know, these were all the vegetables we had chopped, and then they served something else. But I didn't think too much about it. But then the next day, you no know, going to lunch, still no eggplant parmesan. <laughs> so then my mind started thinking they didn't like the way I sliced my eggplant. They weren't even enough. One was too high. One was too low. They probably had to throw the whole pan out. I'm such a terrible veggie chopper. I mean, my mind went really on a big trip about this. Finally, after a couple of days. I mean, I was also somewhat amused by my mind. (laughs) Things are so obviously ridiculous. However, the mind was doing this. You know, it was just... So finally, I asked one of the cooks, hey, you know, remember that eggplant we sliced? (laughs) Whatever happened to it? I said, oh, yeah, we made it and we froze it for some future lunch. (laughs) It was just a a good example, once again, of the countless ways we get caught in these patterns of self-judgment. It can be about the most ridiculous things. It doesn't matter, right, if it, hooks into a particular pattern in our mind, that's what's gonna happen. So what becomes very obvious if we are watching our minds through this whole dance? And I'm sure this is very clear to you at this point. We don't invite these thoughts. You know, we're not sitting and saying, okay, self-judgment, Let's come. We do not invite these thoughts. They just come. But through a growing mindfulness, if we can be aware, then we can begin to discern the critical difference between being lost in thought and being aware of the fact that we're thinking. Just that is key. Are we lost in the thought? What is that like? Are we aware that we're thinking? What is that like? Very different. Again from Utejanir. He said, don't feel disturbed by the thinking mind. You are not practicing to prevent thinking. What you are practicing is to recognize and acknowledge thinking whenever it arises. Did you get this one? This one is really important. Because if you're practicing to prevent thinking, that is a setup for struggle. Because thoughts are gonna come, and they come uninvited. So our practice is not to try to have this kind of defensive posture, okay, can't think. Rather, can we practice and refine our awareness so that we become increasingly aware that we're thinking. Then it's no problem at all. You know, we're all a package of different qualities. And we're all different packages and we have different kinds of thoughts that have been conditioned. And so for some it may be self-judgment, for some it may be fantasy or desire or whatever. A lot of aversion. If we can be aware of thoughts when they arise and see their empty nature, the thoughts themselves are not a problem. And so, one way I practiced with this, particularly when I was going through a big storm of the judging mind, you know, I just kind of these endless judgments were arising in my mind. I developed this technique. This is not in the suttas. should be, but it's not. <laughs> whenever, whenever I noticed a judging thought in my mind, I just put on a tagline, the sky is blue. That person took too much food. The sky is blue. They're walking too fast, the sky is blue, so on. So what did that do? If the thought came, the sky is blue, if that arose in the mind, would there be any reaction? Probably not. It would just, the sky is blue, it would just come and go. No reaction, we wouldn't get hooked into it, we wouldn't condemn it, we wouldn't. It's just, the sky is blue. That person took too much food are just words in the mind, not essentially different than the sky is blue. They're just words. The problem is we don't invest a lot in the sky is blue, and we do invest a lot in that person took too much food, So it has nothing whatsoever to do with the judgment. It has all to do with our relationship to it. And so if we can remind ourselves that all of these very seductive thoughts are no different than the sky is blue, the sky is blue. In that case, we're not lost in it, we're not identified with it, and we're also not condemning it. Now, as with judgment so often, oh, I shouldn't be having that thought. I'm so bad for judging. Or we just invest our whole belief in it. Yeah, that's right. Both of those attitudes actually feed the judging mind. We're strengthening it. If we can just see the thought as thought, that person took too much food, the sky is blue. Nothing. The thought comes and goes. There is no disturbance in the mind at all. So I suggest you practice with that a little bit. And if you don't like the sky is blue, you can use the sky is green. Whatever works. As we begin to unhook from our investment in thoughts, where we're either just totally lost and identified with them or condemning them, when we're in a more accepting, open space where we're simply aware that a thought is there, then we can do something even more interesting. And that is the direct looking, the direct investigation into the nature of thought, not the content At this point, the content is irrelevant. Just as a phenomenon, what is a thought? Have you ever really considered that question? Uh, Maybe you have, you know, being meditators. Most people never consider that question. You know, all these thoughts are running through the mind. People are acting them out in all kinds of ways. Almost no one stops to look and see, well, what is a thought as a phenomenon? And it is so interesting to do that. you know. So you will have five weeks more. You could just examine this question. Every time a thought arises, what is a thought? And what's so interesting about it is that when thoughts are unnoticed, they have this huge power in our lives. They're like little dictators in the mind. They are. It's our thoughts that are driving us. Go here, go there, do this, do that, plan for this. They're just driving us nuts when they're unnoticed. But the amazing, miraculous thing about all this is that in the moment that we are aware of a thought, we see that it's little more than nothing. There's not much there. It's just this little kind of blip in the mind. Kenzi Rinpoche, who was one of the great, great Tibetan masters of the last century, he said, thoughts that arise in the mind have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence at all. There is therefore no logical reason why thoughts should have so much power over us, nor any reason why we should be enslaved by them. Once we recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us. But as long as we take our thoughts as real, they will continue to torment us mercilessly, as they have been doing throughout countless time. And this is a huge shift for us. You know, and being on retreat is a great opportunity just to see over and over again. Thought arises, what is it? What is it? Not the content, the content doesn't matter. Yeah, and when we really see the empty nature of thought, there is such a great sense of ease and relief. This has tremendous consequences, not only for our own well-being. Because for many people, it's not simply a question you know, of getting lost in thought or daydreaming or <laughs> fantasizing. What's happening in so many places of suffering in the world, real intense suffering, is that people are acting out thoughts of fear, thoughts of hatred, thoughts of greed. You know, they're taking these thoughts to be real, acting them out, and causing a huge amount of harm, causing a huge amount of suffering. It's really important to realize that it's not only happening out there with other people. It's happening within ourselves as well. And that's why this practice is so important. You know, meditation, when it's really understood, is not a hobby. It isn't, it's not not just some kind of thing we do because we think it's nice. It's so profound in terms of understanding ourselves and what conditions our actions in the world. And if we want to take responsibility for ourselves and our lives and not create suffering and be a cause for good, then we have to understand our minds. We have to see the nature of thought, see the empty nature. So we're not just driven mercilessly, tormented mercilessly by them.
2: So I'd like to close
1: just with one, and this may be familiar to you, it's, it's just a lovely teaching of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And he has this wonderful, very simple way of just summing up what it's all about. He said, we are visitors on this planet and we are here for 90 or 100 years at the very most. During that period, we must try to do something good and something useful with our lives. If you contribute to other people's happiness, you will find the true goal and the true meaning of life.